Stasipod Q&As, let's go. Okay, before we hop into cues, uh, as of today, there is a sale planned for the 15th of February, President's Day. I love all presidents, don't you guys? I just think they're the best people in the world, each and every one of them. I couldn't pick a favorite. They're all our very special guys. So to celebrate that, of course, we're going to have a drop. Um, I'm recording this a couple days early before it airs. So likely, by now, patrons have gotten a pre-order advance sale. And I hope you like what I've offered you. I think it's good. Without descriptively saying what it is, as details change, um, it is good. And it will make you happy. We're going to cap the month, of course, with another sale on the 27th. This one is going to be a little bit more robust. And uh, from where I stand right now, I do believe Turbo Atoll Chapter 2 is looking in good shape to be fulfilled on uh, with orders from the 15th. So stand by for that. Also by now, everybody has likely received their action figure of the month for February. Um, it's John Killknife, the Native American Star Marshal. Uh, as I've said before, any resemblance to any other character or IP is purely coincidental. This is a fully fleshed out and uh, realized uh, creation of mine, obviously. There's a really good behind-the-scenes post on Patreon. You can check it out. It shows a lot of the work in progress behind John Killknife. Um, been toiling with this idea for a very long time. If you're a patron, even at just the $5 level, you can go have access to that post and check it out. Uh, I think you're, you'll dig it a lot. The title of the post, by the way, is Action for the Month, February 2021. Spoilers. So go and do a deep dive there. If you're not a patron for some reason and you're listening to this, my friend, you got to jump on this train. It's a lot of fun. Speaking of Patreon, that's where we're going to start today with our Patreon questions from our patrons. First up is Eric. Why is Suitman so much bigger than Star Marshal? Um, there's a couple of reasons. One, and I'm going to talk about this in another question later on, I do want a variance of height and body types and sizes in the line. And we're now starting to get close to that. Uh, I see Suitman as being a little more stately, you know, a little more upright, broader shoulders. So it is a taller figure than most things. You actually can get some really interesting proportions by taking Suitman pants and using any of our sort of earlier uh, Night of the Slice figures. In particular, I like using the Rift Killer torso on Suitman pants. It gives this sort of exaggerated uh, proportions that are not unlike the character designs in Macross, which I think are a lot of fun. The other reason is the majority of knight figures, with the exception of our thick boys, are built on the classic knight body. We have a sort of pared down classic knight body, and our sculptors, such as Erwin Papa, will go and build on top of that. Star Marshal was not that. We actually started from a completely new and unique body base, and we did that because it had to fit the armor for our Kitlau collaboration. So there was a much different consideration going on there, and I do believe if you take the sort of standard acid rain figure 
put it side by side with our Knight of the Slice or our Suitman, uh, there is a height differentiation there. And so um, Star Marshal had much different needs in terms of his proportions and his height and, you know, all of his measurements than a sort of standard knight figure where we can kind of build it from the ground up and, and not be concerned with it fitting or working with anything else outside of our sort of usual articulation scheme. Ryan asks, uh, if I remember the paper roll cap firing Robocop toys and if they were cool or not. Uh, not only do I remember them, not only were they cool, I still use them. I still have rolled caps. I still go down and fire off a couple rounds every now and then. And just in general, cap firing weapons are pretty fantastic and pretty great. Now, I catch a lot of flack uh, because I'm not really a devotee of uh, Masters of the Universe. I, I don't really think Transformers G1 holds up all that well. You know, a lot of the sort of the the like really big brands and toys, I'm sort of over and, you know, I don't obsess about. And I do that because if you take something like He-Man Masters of the Universe, the original line, and you stack it next to something like Hasbro's Cops line, Hasbro's Cops line is head and shoulders so much better of a toy line with innovation and interesting gimmicks and cap-firing weapons. I, I think pound for pound, that Hasbro Cops line, which didn't last very long, I don't think did very well at retail, I think that is such a much more dramatic and interesting, uh, you know, toy line that's worthy of a slavish devotion uh, compared to something that I find to be very plain and repetitive, like Masters of the Universe. So in closing, yes, I'm always a fan of anything cap-firing, and uh, I do think it's cool. This is probably going to spawn another question. Will I ever do cap-firing things? Probably not. <laughs> Mike Johnson says, or asks, is the Vaughn we see in Turbo Atoll pre-Frankenslice event or post-Frankenslice event? Uh, if you read the sort of um, first scene in Turbo Atoll chapter one, we see that he uh, Vaughn is recounting his, his entanglement with Alexander and having the Frankenslice power and losing the Frankenslice power. So it is post-Frankenslice for Vaughn when we meet him in Turbo Atoll. Brent Lawson, will you start a Night of the Slice cult and provide us with life lessons to live by, or have we by chance already joined? Inquiring minds want to know the spice must flow. Uh, I think for legal reasons I have to say I have not started a cult, and um, also that I would never start a religion as a tax haven because um, I legally want to just put that out there. If I ever start a religion, it will be in earnest and because I am providing religious services, not because I'm seeking a tax shelter, okay? So now that I'm on the record saying that, uh, I would also caution, uh, I'm very happy when my anecdotes or my mantras or things like that uh, inspire people or, you know, bring about a positive change. I've had people reach out privately and say, hey, I, I stopped drinking soda all day long and I feel great. And uh, that stuff always tickles me. But I really want to caution, don't fucking listen to me, okay? And take everything I say with a grain of salt and uh, don't seek out sort of guidance or, uh, you know, life coaching or things like that 
through the internet, go to, uh, you know, doctorate level mental health professionals. That is where real change happens. Uh, I don't recommend my life path for anybody. I am sort of just simply sharing things that I've encountered and, uh, you know, how I've tried to make my life a little better. And the same thing goes for, like, the perception of success, right? I am no more successful than any of you guys. I have simply had more concentrated focus on this one project and this one aspect with very little interruption, you know, because I don't have kids, I'm not married, uh, you know, I don't have a gambling debt, and I don't really abuse drugs and alcohol all that much. So the, even, you know, if people perceive me to be successful, that's kind of a distortion too. I, I just have like probably going on 15 years of a hyper laser focus on a single project. And that's brought me to where I am today. I guarantee if any of you could have, could or will sort of hone in that laser focus, you will have relatively the same results in uh, your creative endeavors. So, you know, let's avoid demagoguery. Always happy to sort of share my own experience. And uh, again, for legal reasons, I would never uh, classify this as a cult. And uh, I would never start a religion as a tax haven. If I start a religion, it's going to be for very earnest pursuits. Lance Tomimoto asks, is this the end of the Tomimoto zone? My friend, we are in the Tomimoto zone right now. Now, Lance is probably referencing that I have instated a limit one question per person for the Q&As. This is not to, uh, you know, castrate the Tomimoto zone. This is just because my time is even shorter uh, than usual. It actually takes me about three days now to record Distazapod. I do it in the early morning, and then I have a full day of fulfillment and planning. I'm sort of in a crunch time. I have about two or three weeks before China comes back in full from the holiday, and I'm scrambling to get everything done alongside doing record number of fulfillment for orders that are through the roof. And uh, and then, you know, uh, squeezing in a little snow shoveling here and there. So uh, I, I do need to keep it limit one per question for everybody. Uh, the other factor is that our Patreon numbers are really huge right now. Um, almost every day somebody new is signing up, and I want to make sure I can get everybody in here in the sort of limited amount of time I have to record these things. So I thank you guys in advance for keeping it uh, shorter and simpler. And it also lets me sort of be a little more in-depth with each question. I don't have to do rapid-fire sort of, you know, very shallow answers to things. Philip Barrara, will we have another green goodie bag month this March like last year? Always fun to get random surprise parts for customization. Um, I don't have that planned because I don't think I have a big surplus of green parts. I I will go and check and see if that's something that's feasible. I do have a couple... Uh, quasi goodie bag, random bag ideas that I might enact sooner than later. One, as I've talked about before, is the random bugmen. I have a bunch of spare bugmen heads. I have a bunch of spare bodysuits, and uh, I might have a couple 
classic knight base body. So what I'm thinking I will do is just have a skew that's random bugmen. You guys pay however much it is, and you get a random assortment of those components to build your own bugmen. That one will be relatively easy to do, so you could look for that conceivably in the near future. The other thing I want to do is I have so much garbage, not garbage, but I have so many figures and so much gastropon and keshi from my trips overseas that I want to put together sort of uh, boxes of miscellaneous stuff like, um, you know, Ultraman figures, Shoto figures, um, you know, random gashapon stuff like that. So I'm uh, slowly organizing all my stuff and figuring out what is the best way to pair these up. But I think you could see conceivably on the store these kind of uh, wild crates that include a lot of Japanese merchandise and, and other cool stuff. So uh, that is a opportunity that may happen sooner than later. Uh, I would put the idea of a sort of, you know, mimicking our green goodie bag from March last year. I would put that third behind those two opportunities. Tim Wilkins, in the absence of the cowboy armor, will Star Marshall ever include his own hat? So fun fact, there is actually a hat sculpted for Star Marshall. Now we did not end up moving forward with that hat, one, because it needed to be a different derotomer of plastic, it needed to be softer than the, the relatively small Star Marshall tool, and two, at the time we were tooling Star Marshall, we already had this Kitlau armor that provided a cowboy hat. Um, now that there's not likely going to be uh, a huge future for the crossover items, we are figuring out a way to do a hat for Star Marshall. Again, the sculpt exists already, so that's sort of the biggest hurdle to get over. Uh, we just need to find a cavity in a certain mold that has the right derotomer of plastic to uh, execute it. So I would say that is a, you know, that has a very good chance of becoming a reality. It's something we're knocking our heads together to try and figure out at this very moment. In the meantime, as it has been pointed out before, you can go to uh, Chicken Fried Toys, I believe it's called. They have a whole ton of accessories for cowboys, and I've seen a couple people utilize the hats uh, on our figures, so they seem to work relatively well. Kenneth West, Exalted Reverend Jesse, if, by the way, that's, that's why I give that disclaimer about uh, not being a cult. Uh, if another online or IRL vendor store were to approach you about trying mass retail for Knights of the Slice again, what would it take for me to commit to this? Or would I shy away from trying retail outlets again? Um, I, I get interest from online people quite a bit. Um, I'm not particularly motivated to do that. Um, my answer today is I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. and I don't think it makes sense for the brand. That's not to say conditions couldn't change in the future, and it would make sense. Um, oh man, it's tough. What would it take for me to commit to it? I don't know. You know, part of, part of the gamble with mass retail, if we're talking about Walmart and Target, is what happens if the stuff doesn't sell, right? There are very few lines that actually continue on if they've graced the toy aisles at Walmart or Target and they do not do well. Partially because you're on the hook for that inventory. I'm not, you know, selling to mass is not just 
you have uh, 10,000 units, they issue a purchase order, you ship them the goods, they pay you for the goods, and it's the end of the day. No, that's not it. Uh, there's an entire web of sort of uh, EDI, which I'm failing to remember what that stands for, electronic data integration or something like that, where you have to sort of be in the network of these retailers and you have to issue purchase orders on their forms. You have to guarantee these milestones of, uh, you know, issuing invoices and ship dates and confirming bill of lathing. And if you don't meet all those standards, you get hit with fines and fees. Uh, so even before your product is on store shelves, you can already have racked up quite a debt to these retailers. They, they, frankly, they make a lot of money with this EDI uh, scheme. Uh, I don't know any other way to call it than that. Then when your goods are in store, if your sell-through rate is not consistent, this means the, the amount of items you are selling every day, uh, sorry, every week, and how it is diminishing, what percentage of it is diminishing the overall total inventory, then they're gonna start hitting you for markdown money. Now that can mean they deduct that from the balance they owe you. That can mean you're physically paying money to them. It's a, it's a fucking, it's just a quicksand trap. It honestly is. And for a company my size, that would be a bullet in the back of my head. So, <clears throat> I don't know what the conditions are for me to commit to mass retail at, uh, of Knights of the Slice. Probably, if I'm just imagining scenarios, it would have to be as a licensed deal to a different manufacturer who is already embedded with these retailers. So let's just, we're just spitballing here. Let's say Hasbro is going to option six inch Knight of the Slice figures for a black series style line uh, they're going to handle all the production and all of the fulfillment to the retailer and they just cut me a royalty check and i sign off on approvals and things like that that's probably the only scenario in which it makes sense because the risk and the liability for a sole proprietor like myself being in the shark infested waters of these big retail companies the danger is too great not to mention aside of all that just the sheer time suck that it is to manage those accounts. Uh, I would never be able to sort of do anything creative and push this line forward. So uh, where I stand today, it looks like an impossible thing, but uh, you know, you never know what details might change. John Gordon has a really fantastic question here. What is more satisfying for you as a creator, having somebody love a figure that you made or someone love a story that you've written? And for me, it is the latter. Having somebody love a story I've written is a thousand times more meaningful than somebody liking a toy I've done. And the reason is, you're not getting anything tangible for a story. Anybody can kind of pick up a, a toy or a figure or an object and if it's cast in a clear pink with sparkles without knowing anything about that night of the slice 
anybody could look at that and say, ah, oh, this is beautiful, or oh, I appreciate this, or wow, what fun, or, you know, it, it can evoke any number of positive reactions to the majority of human beings, because we're attracted to color, we like things that are sparkly, you know, all the sort of universally connective ideas that go along with that. So it's not really asking much of anybody to appreciate a beautiful object that's been crafted. Uh, the written word asks so much more from people, especially in this economy of attention with all these streaming wars and endless Wikipedia articles and everything you can consume to sort of turn your brain off for a little while and read a story or look at a comic book that I did. Um, that requires so much more of you guys. And so therefore, it is kind of more meaningful. And, and also, having been a frustrated writer and comic artist and just really my entire life wanting to share my art and my stories and having really about 30 years of complete obscurity where it was pulling teeth to get even friends and family to read the stuff I was doing. Uh, to be on the other side of that now is tremendously fulfilling. And uh, so for me, that's a very easy call. Michael Coppola, have the releases of Sen 5 and Crow Mega been established? Are we getting our 4 slash 4 army at once or staggered? This is a really good question and I don't have an answer as of today. I can give you guys an update on where these projects stand but the truth is, things have not advanced in a meaningful way since the end of the campaign. Uh, the real work is going to start as soon as China is back from their holiday. Now, this year's holiday, as I've referred to before, is not a traditional one. There are a lot of factors in flux, including potentially some more shutdowns and uh, quarantines and things like that. I don't have a full view of what's going on over there. Um... Until about the beginning of March, neither project is going to move forward. Uh, once the factories are back in order, I can begin transmitting files, we can send back tooling models, we can start getting our costing on painted figures, and plan the rollout from there. So, um, none of this is actually very surprising because uh, it was always a race to the Chinese New Year cutoff. Um, you know, my only hope was that I I was hoping Sen5 would begin tooling in January, which wouldn't really give us much of a lead time uh, because the holiday break would happen, but it would just sort of give us a tiny bit of a leg up. That's not happening now. Uh, nothing's happening over there right now. So what is the best way to think about this is really until the beginning of March, these things are just going to be locked in homeostasis and then there will be a mad dash to kind of tool and produce these figures. That means, let's see, March, April, that means May is really the first time I will see, end of April, early May will be the first time I'll see test shots. There'll be a lot of paint apps and debugging and things like that. So these are summer figures. Um, the second part of your question, will the sort of army builder option be fulfilled at the same time? I don't know. That's a really good question. And it's just going to depend on if there are any delays with the production of Sen 5 and Chromega. At this point, because both neither figure have been tooled, 
there's a very good chance one or the other could gain a few weeks or lose a few weeks in the production schedule, and they could conceivably be ready at the same time. I just don't know yet. We're, we're sort of too early in the process to, uh, to know. If I had to bet, I think that the Army Builder fulfillment would likely be staggered, and it would likely be staggered in you're getting all your Send 5 figures in one mailing, and then a few weeks later or a month later, you're getting all your Chromega figures. Um, but as of today, it's entirely possible everything is fulfilled at once. I, I will keep you posted. Moving along to JT, what led to the decision to double spray the glorious John Killknife? Hard to match the plastic color to what you wanted, or just a desire for that extra deluxe look and hand feel? Uh, I, I touched on this a little bit in someone's comment, but the double spray was not intentional. That was a decision that China made uh, at the sort of paint level, and it looked great, so we decided to keep it, and they didn't charge me extra, which they probably should have done. Uh, the issue is, or the, the sort of genesis of this is, the, the base color of the plastic uh, did not take up the majority of this surface area. So, uh, this might be a little bit in the weeds, but basically, whatever your base color plastic is, that should be the dominant color of the design. And that was not really the case for John Killknife, because there's that sort of deeper orange color that arguably takes up the majority of the skull. So, if this was uh, sort of produced the way it was intended and designed, all of the lighter yellow colors would be unpainted on him. That would be your base plastic color. And then the orange deco would be sprayed on top of there. Now, the factory sort of saw this figure and probably experimented with it and decided that uh, because the orange was so dominant, that should be a base spray color with yellow detailing adding on top. There, there's probably also a calculation they did with yellow being a lighter color and orange being a darker color and, um, you know, the ability for lighter colors to cover up over a darker color. Um, but in any case, it was a calculation on their part. It looks great, um, but this, you know, probably would have been considered a sort of hyper deluxe version of a figure. And I would say don't count on more double spray figures unless you want an additional, uh, you know, four or five dollars tacked on to your unit cost. Paul Wire, or Weyer, uh, asks, besides the Dino collab, the thicker sculpts of last year and this current year, are you eyeing any other body types for upcoming sculpts? Uh, I want to I have, like I said earlier, a variety of body types, a variety of heights, a variety of builds. Uh, I'm very interested in having a sort of like, uh, you know, a more rotund, bigger character, like a, a sort of King Calvin. I think that would be a lot of fun to have. Um, I would like to have really rail-thin, skinny characters that are sort of like, you know, sinewy and, and a little gross. Um, I, I am slowly working on building out the library to accommodate all this stuff. And, and yes... Eventually, I would like to tackle another female character. I don't know when we'll get to that, but that's on the list as well. 
Gordon McKinnon Hall has an interesting question here. What forms my view of different patrons as individuals? Meeting a fan in person, working with someone as an artist for hire, how much do people start to blur together as the Patreon and larger Night of the Slice community grows? Um, I would say that if I haven't met you in person, I probably don't have a, a really good cerebral uh, dossier on you. Uh, largely because I, I have to look at so many names every single day, so many emails, so many screen names, and alter aliases, which also complicates things. So I'm not very cognizant of people's identities or personalities unless I've met them in person. Uh, so Gordon, who asked the question, met Gordon quite a few times, very nice guy, know what he looks like, know what he sounds like. He's pretty well cemented in my brain. Uh, Everybody else, unfortunately, until I have the pleasure of meeting you in person, you are just sort of a, a name on a screen. Now, there are different levels of that, like the Design and Night quartet of uh, fans that have, you know, ponied up their hard-earned cash to design a Sen 5 or a Chromega. I have a lot more back and forth with those guys. We've all collaborated on this thing, so there's a little bit more meat hanging on those coat hangers. But, uh, you know, I, I think, for my mind, it prioritizes people whose faces I've seen. And I think that's just kind of a human trait. I, I wouldn't sort of put any, uh, you know, larger sentiment behind that. Jonathan Ortiz, after seeing the awesome painted Marson and taking a stab at painting a figure myself, I'm curious as to what steps and products you would recommend for someone to paint their own Knights of the Slice. Um, this comes up often. I think there's an older Destazapod where I go really in-depth about it. Uh, I'm sure somebody like Eric Valverde will post the exact Destazapod episode number and time code, because he's really good at that. Um, but briefly, the most important thing you can do is clean the figure before you paint it. I use rubbing alcohol. I rub it down, uh, and then I let it air dry. Using gloves is very important too. We don't think of it, but these things are filthy. And if you're also then adding the oils on your fingertips to the surface of the figure you're painting, that affects paint adhesion as well. Um, the other things I would say is, I actually really like using airbrush paint, but hand brushing it on, not using the gun. I find that to uh, be really good, and, and particularly Vallejo airbrush paints. Highly, highly recommend them. They're a little pricey, but they'll do. Um, if you're not in the position to be spending a lot of money on paints and using uh, Vallejo, just get any craft store version of acrylic paints and water them down. This is one of the big things I learned late in life is that you have to do multiple coats for paint. Don't be uh, impatient and just try to slather it all on at once. You want to cut your paint with about one part water, one part paint, almost as if it's a wash. And then brush it on, let it dry, brush it on, build it up multiple, multiple coats. The beauty part of using airbrush paint is it's already cut with water essentially. So it is kind of at the right consistency and you're good to go right out of the bottle. Um, some people use clear coats, some people don't. I don't really coat the figures I paint, but in truth, I, I don't have a lot of time to paint figures anyway. So hopefully those are like your, 
your standard starting points that will start to uh, make a big difference in how you paint. And I, I wish you good luck because uh, it's a lot of fun to do. Next up, Gavin Rader. Will we get a crack at the Star Marshall Alt Robot Head in the test type tan color? Or was that not produced in the test type colorway? Uh, the fate of that head has yet to be determined, so stand by. Chris Warner, will there be another homage to oppose February's action figure of the month, say a hexed cowboy? Uh, if that's going to exist, it's probably going to be only through people's customs. But I do look forward to seeing that. And actually, I think that the uh, training suit Jasmine base body might be a good uh, thing to build off of. Scott Page, considering your recent comments about vehicles having a short lifespan in your toy collection, are there any vehicles in your world of Knights of the Slice that you'd like to see produced one day? What are the top three qualities you'd need in a vehicle? Um, the thing that pops to mind is, is it might be interesting to have a, a rift killer UFO. Uh, they're seen briefly in, uh, I believe, issue number three of Knights of the Slice. And I, I love that design. It was by Brian Phelps, who also did the Action Figure of the Month February sticker. Um, I think that would be really cool as like a one-man sort of spacecraft. For me, vehicles have to... They have to have like excellent detailing. You know, the sculpt is really super important. Uh, they should kind of... I don't know how to describe it. They should just have like a pleasant hand feel. You know what I mean? Like when it's in your hand, it should feel right. It should feel like it's it's got balance. It's it's the right size. It's in proportion to the, you know, the characters of the line that it reflects. But I think the most important thing is um, cockpit cockpits that uh, seat the character kind of snugly. And I think that's something we've gotten away from in uh, figure design is, you know, there's nothing worse than a vehicle you sort of open up the hatch and, and you're just kind of throwing the figure in there and there's nothing to keep him in place and he's just wiggling around as you're, you know, traveling at Mach 3 around the living room. So I, I do like a snug fit in a cockpit. And, um, I, you know, I'm looking right now at robotics. They have some of the best kind of canopies and, and uh, cockpits you can find in the toy world. And uh, this astronaut sits incredibly snug right in there. So I think that that's probably the most crucial part of what makes a vehicle great. Ryan Rusby, if you could trick a successful game company into making a Night of the Slice video game of exceptional quality with no cost or effort at all to you, what type of genre slash game would it be? Would I get invested in the project and want to help make choices? Or would I step back and let them handle the license like a 1986 LGN NES movie game deal? Um, so this may not answer exactly those questions, but I have actually taken the first step into doing more than a thought exercise with video games. It is something I thought about since the inception of Knights of the Slice. Uh, I've talked about this on previous Dostazopods. I think I actually broke down in greater depth what uh, that game would be. So I've taken the first step that I always take with any creative project, especially a very big, ambitious one. And that is to get a white three-ring binder, make a nameplate, and to uh, start printing out a three-hole punching reference. 
and things that will inspire this project. And in the case of this binder, it's simply called KOTS The Game. And inside, I'm just compiling thoughts on games that I like, character art, map layout, stuff like that. Uh, this may never come to fruition. You guys should not sort of take this as a signal that a game is eminent and, and on the way. This is, some, this is simply a more serious step that I take when I'm contemplating things. And I think that the brand is at a good enough position and, uh, you know, I can free up a little bit of brain power to eventually noodle this along as I work on other projects. I actually like having a couple different big complex things to switch up throughout the day. You know, just kind of focus for an hour. When I start to feel bored or uninspired, I jump to the next big ambition project. So I can confirm for you that there is actually a binder now with that is dedicated to what a Night of the Slice game would be. Uh, as I imagine it, it is a sort of point-and-click affair. Not unlike NES's Deja Vu or Shadowgate or Snatcher or um, Nightshade, which you guys can play on the Virtual Console on Switch. Very underrated. One of the best NES games ever. Incredibly complex. One of the first, like, open-world games. Uh, You should really check it out. It would be like that, with the premise being you're you're walking through all these beautiful uh, pixel art screens, and you're manipulating the environment to solve a crime, likely a pizza-related crime. Uh, so, I, I've always held this idea firm. I know this is the way it has to be. I know this is the form the game would take. I've never wavered in my conviction on that. I'm now starting to slowly put together the pieces. The good news is, I don't actually think I would need to license it out to a video game company. I may not even need to to fundraise for it. Maybe I would. But uh, I think this could be a small enough project that I could manage myself. And having supplemental artists kind of helping fill in things, um, it could conceivably be accomplished. Because it is... A relatively small idea. I think where a lot of games and a lot of kickstarted games, the trouble they run into is their ambition continues to grow as the funds they raise grow. And that is why the large majority of kickstarted games never come out. They're actually frauds. They're pyramid schemes. Um, so I have a very finite, very small adventure that I would like to do. And I know the people I would like to work with. And I think it could conceivably be done at some point. Now, if anyone in my audience has experience with RPG Maker uh, MV, which is a a sort of game slash software for uh, people that want to make their own games, uh, you should make yourself known because at a certain point, it would be good to utilize Squires of the Slice to help physically build this game out. And I'm going to download RPG Maker MV and, and... have a go with it, and and try to learn as much as I can about the process, but ultimately I will need somebody who is, you know, an expert at it to be able to help execute and articulate this idea I have. But, um, you know, I I think that that's an interesting update for some people, but again, don't give it too much weight. 
I have a full-time business to run here, and uh, this is just sort of a very deep side project at this point. John Emmett asks, how would the Mauler Gauntlet have attached to Battle Hob if he had been made? Um, the Mauler Gauntlet uh, would have simply been sort of bored out. It would have been drilled out on the side um, and would have been glued to Hob. There is not a way to sort of connect the Mauler Gauntlet in a you know, a glios fashion where it can pop on and off. It would have to be affixed there in place. And, um, you know, there's not really uh, a workaround for that. So probably not the most interesting and exciting answer, but uh, it is the most practical and reasonable. Eric Valverde, just listened to your last pod. Loved Yordorovsky, Yordorovsky's Dune to no end uh, for many of the reasons you mentioned. There are films that resonate in me so much that they almost redirect me and that is one of them i've only seen this i've only seen his most popular films have you seen many of his films and what are some of your favorites that might not be so well known um i'm gonna i'm going to uh clue you in on yordorovsky most of his stuff is unintelligible and self-indulgent and that doesn't mean it's bad and it doesn't have value but uh most of his films are unwatchable and most of his comics when it's sort of just him and nobody's editing him are, you know, incredibly masturbatory and indulgent and not particularly captivating. Now, that's not to say he's not a wildly creative guy and there is much knowledge you can glean from his efforts. But for Yodorovsky, much like David Lynch, they are sort of stream of consciousness. And the problem with stream of consciousness creation is that there's very little to, to grab onto and to tether you and to help you sort of understand and process. So his films are just kind of like a series of scenes strung together. You know, they're very obtuse. They're, they're meant to be that way. And they do stick with you and they do inspire you. But um, for my tastes, a linear story will always trump a, a, a sort of artistic experiment. I, I don't know that, you know, there's any, like, real tangible difference between Holy Mountain or Il Topo or even something like Fando Elise. Um, they're all just kind of peeks into Yodorovsky's head. They're all pretty unintelligible and hard to follow. I, I would say probably Il Topo is, is the most streamlined, if you want to call it that. There is sort of a an arc, sort of. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I don't know that. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I think they're they're good experiments, but um, I don't know if I have sort of specific recommendations for people. I, I guess I would start at Il Topo and Holy Mountain, and if you find either of those to be particularly captivating or speaking to you. Uh, then you can move on to uh, some of his other stuff. I actually think probably the, the greatest output Yodorovsky ever did, and I'm assuming that uh, Jimenez, his artist, was co-writing this because it is a very, very contained, linear, traditional story, is the comic Son of the Gun. And uh, this is him and uh, Jimenez, who he often works with on Metabarons uh, comics and stuff like that. It, it is a very, very 
tethered, traditional, grounded in reality story about a, uh, a, a sort of, I guess a gangster, you would say. And um, it has his little embellishments and his little weirdnesses, but it is largely consumable to anybody and actually would make a, a very good movie that wouldn't be too expensive. So um, I think that that, you know, Son of the Gun is probably what I think is his best work because it is him with constraints and on the rails, which the large volume of his work is is not. I would sort of also liken him to, you know, Kojima. Kojima and his his storytelling and, and um, you know, his output is better when there are constraints to it. You know, I think Peter Jackson is another good example of this. If you, if you look at... Look at the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then not just look at The Hobbit, which was a disaster for many reasons. Look at King Kong. Look at what he made after Lord of the Rings with the clout he had and his ability to have an unlimited budget and little to no oversight. You can see the difference in these things. Um, now, we can talk about the considerations of capital and how that stymies creativity, but... If you are really an artist, I think that at a certain point you recognize your own ego is a counterbalance to doing good stuff. And that constraints, um, you know, it can be a positive force in, in creative output. It, it's difficult to come to that realization, uh, but I find it to be very true. Sean Denny says, you mentioned some Star Trek characters recently. Do you have any favorite episodes or storylines from TNG or Deep Space Nine? Now, uh, I haven't watched Deep Space Nine since I was a kid. Uh, I am making my way through TNG from the beginning once again. And uh, after I complete that, I'll be happy to jump into DS9. Um, I have lots of sort of favorite episodes and storylines. Uh, generally, and I know people are kind of on one side or the other of this, but generally I like the holodeck episodes. Um, I really thought, you know, the story arc of Moriarty is really fascinating. And and I would argue that sort of second Moriarty episode is so good you can kind of start somebody on that episode who's never seen Star Trek before, and they will... Um, you know, instantly be entranced. I don't want to give away the sort of twist and the reveal of that episode, but it's so very clever and really leaves you guessing the entire time until, you know, there's the prestige and you're like, ah, okay, I see. Um, so generally, I actually like the kind of sillier episodes. I like the um, holodeck episodes. Q episodes are, are pretty good. You know, that's a great character. And I would say also... Anytime Picard manages to sneak off the Enterprise, you're usually in for something pretty exciting. And I do give props to uh, TNG for finally sort of having that rule that the captain's not supposed to leave the ship, unlike what Kirk did in TOS all the time. Uh, it makes a lot more sense in TNG. Uh, Deep Space Nine, like I said, I haven't watched it in a couple decades. 
But I do remember really loving the Tosk episode with the sort of guys hunting him down on DS9. And I do, <laughs> I do remember distinctly they had these sort of bow and arrow weapons that were actually repurposed Nerf guns. Um, and I recognized that being like a toy maniac. I was like, ah, look at that. They're using Nerf bow and arrows. <laughs> so um, hopefully I can report back once I get into DS9 again and uh, give some more suggestions. Oh, and also, as I've said previously, you can kind of avoid Season 1 of TNG and almost kind of avoid Season 2. It gets a little bit better, but really the series picks up from from Season 3 onward. And I think that's, you know, if you have somebody that doesn't like Star Trek or isn't into Star Trek, but you're forcing them at gunpoint to watch it, I would say, you know, be have a little bit of mercy. Start at Season 3. If Riker doesn't have a beard, you don't want to watch it. Matt Bennett has a... Very good question here. There seems to be a slight color variation of all the dark figures that could be considered black. Is this intentional? Uh, yes. I almost never ever use PMS Black C or PMS Black U. Um, I think there's there's so many interesting tones that you can get into in that really really dark area of things that would be considered black. Um, that plain, just really like completely saturated black. It's not exciting for me. If you look at, uh, for those who picked up the Air Mare figure, this is a, boy, it's almost a cobalt or a sort of slightly, slightly greenish black. And I think it's a fantastic color. Um, I, you know, there, there's so much that you can play with in that range and you have these little tiny hints of color uh, that you just can't do if something is the pure saturated version. Of it, especially black, which, you know, black is the absence of color. So uh, it's not a base color that I use very much. And I think if you look at the entire breadth of all the knights, uh, the slice lined up together, um, you see it's it's all about the color. It's all about these different tones and these sort of micro shades. And uh, that's why I don't, I really very scarcely utilize a pure 100% saturated black. Retrozone Neon, will we get a clear device ninja as seen in Turbo Atoll Chapter 1? Uh, you will, you already did, it is in the store, and the last four are in stock. This is a very rare, older figure that I held on to some inventory of and re-released. I do not do that very often, and the final four of them are left in the store. So if you're hearing this and you want a clear ninja, I would advise go get it right now probably not going to be around for very long, and it is not a style I intend to rerun. Also, speaking of, in the middle of recording this, I was talking about how Turbo Waytail Chapter 2 should be on the way to me shortly. It actually got delivered in the middle of recording this, so it is here. It is in hand. Uh, this book looks fantastic. You guys are going to freak when you read Chapter 2, but I think you're really going to lose your minds when you see the bonus comic story in full color that is included. Um, I am very much excited to get this out there to you guys. So, brief little update there. Michael Berger, does the Star Marshal have a preferred mode of transportation? Uh, he does. We have not seen it, and I don't know if we will see it. <laughs> um, there, there is certainly a design for what mode of locomotion a Star Marshal would use. Ultimately, I did not move forward with it beyond the concepting stage, uh, due in part to, you know, the reality that 
ancillary items don't do very well for, for me. Um, capsules and capsule version 2, the, the zoner version, um, these have sold okay. They have probably made their money back after a few years, but they are not items that continue to generate very much profit for me, and they are items that take up a lot of very precious warehouse space. So um, going off of the data I have now of six years of sales, it is very, very challenging and very risky to uh, do vehicles or non-figural items. So it's something I have to sort of tread lightly on. And uh, I think that that means, unfortunately, our boy Star Marshal is not going to have an official 3D product that is his, uh, his ride, if you know what I mean. And now I'm going to hop over to Facebook for a couple questions here. Philip Rara, your favorite ghost slash scary story, anything from personal experience, your own story, or folklore. Uh, you know, as dependable as always, Eric Valverde chimes in. The constant threat of alien abduction as a child sounds pretty scary. He is, of course, referencing uh, older Stazopods, where I've talked at great length about this. I definitely think, like, alien abduction stuff, I grew up in that era when it was at a fever pitch. Um, so, you know, that's pretty compelling stuff. My English teacher told me a story about a place called Gillette Castle in Connecticut, which, you know, we'd all sort of been on school trips to, and... Um, you know, uh, walked, walked to, hiked up many times. Um, actually, now that I say it, it may not be Gillette Castle. It might be another castle. There are a few castles in Connecticut, which is interesting. <laughs> but um, I, I think this is the one that is... Oh, God. I would have to do a little research and figure it out. But anyway, he told the story of him and his friends going up at night to one of these castles and uh, one of them got attacked by a dog and there was a sort of uh, you know a ghost dog type uh, scary story that went on and apparently his friend was injured I don't know if he's blowing smoke up our ass uh, if it's a true story or not but um, it was a pretty compelling one for me at the time uh, I'm gonna have to <laughs> I gotta get in touch with Josh and see if he remembers this story. It was Mr. Putterman's class. So uh, I'll get back to you guys on that. Moving along to Burton Jack. Sega's Shikan was done. Do you think a Sega Vector Man would make a good Glyos figure? So I have to sort of answer this on two different merits. Do I think the character itself would look good as Glyos figure? Absolutely, because he is, you know, all these sort of shapes that kind of fit together. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, he, his body parts are sort of floating in the air. That would be difficult, if not impossible, to sort of mimic with Glyos. But generally, character design-wise, that's a character that would lend itself very well to Glyos. Do I think it's a smart business move, or people would buy it, or people know who Vector Man is? No, I do not. Um, Shikan is, you know, a very important character to me. I'm very happy we got the opportunity to make that figure. Uh, he is a small, dedicated cult following. And we're lucky enough that those Shikan fans still love Shikan all these years later and would purchase a figure. In the case of Vector Man, there is no other ancillary media out there. Shikan is a comic book character first who became a video game and... The creator, Robert Cross, has been making Shikan comics this whole entire time, feeding the mythology, getting new people into the, the uh, Shikan camp. 
Without that, there's nothing to propel something like Vector Man. Um, you know, there's there's no fan base. I doubt there's a Facebook group. Uh, it would be business-wise not a very smart move. But uh, I like where your head's at. Ultras Baltard, I have a question regarding art in the Vector. Does it still exist in traditional forms, or has art upped the ante through the alteration of avatars making fashion a high-valued art? This is a, almost an indecipherable question, but I think I get what you're saying. Um, you're phrasing it wrong, however. The vector itself, when we say the vector, that is the highway. That is the means in which you travel to where you're going. Different worlds are different exit ramps off of the vector. Very little exists in the vector because it is just essentially a cement freeway. Um, now we know that uh, the, the Corriger was one of the only beings that sort of could survive and live in the vector for quite some time. Doesn't seem like he made much art when he was there. We got a little peek into, uh, you know, his life there in the Elegy story, and it doesn't seem like there was anything going on other than him tinkering with different handguns and maybe some doomsday prepping. Uh, if I'm extrapolating correctly, are there traditional forms of art in these other worlds that are connected by the Vector? You can assume, uh, as you should for our real life, that there is any number of ultimate, alternate worlds and dimensions with every configuration of every variable possible uh, and we're all just sort of sitting there unconverged. So uh, if you can imagine it, it probably exists somewhere out there. Uh, I know this is, might be a heady answer, but hopefully that, that uh, satisfies you. Snake Pike, in your earlier days of making toys, somewhere around your first few, pro few projects, what was your process for taking drawings or ideas and translating them into fully realized 3D objects? Uh, well, my process was I didn't do it very well. Um, I guess my earliest stuff consisted of drawing a front, side, and back view of a character and then putting some clay over those shapes and trying to kind of mold a very primitive form, uh, you know, within the contours of that. As I got more sophisticated about trying to make toys, I dabbled with resin molding and casting. And I think I've called out on Desazapod previously, you can get a smooth-on starter kit um, pretty cheaply, and you can start experimenting. Although, these are very toxic chemicals, so you should wear protection if you go down that path. So I spent a few years tinkering with um, molding and casting, largely pulling from parts that already existed. You know, a Star Wars arm here, He-Man accessory there, a lot of hot glue, a little bit of green stuff. And I would make very, again, crude and primitive casts of these figures. Now it turns out I'm deathly allergic to the materials utilizing, uh, you have to utilize to make resin molds and casts. And I would get big, huge blotches on my forehead, on my cheeks, and it looked like somebody had taken a flamethrower to my face. So I had to retire from uh, molding and casting. I couldn't do it anymore. It was uh, hazardous to my health. That left me with not a whole lot of options. Uh, this is around the time I started to work with Matt Doughty's form of the Glios figures. He would sort of send me unpainted ones, blank ones, and I would 
make a new head or I would, you know, add some paint to it, things like that. Um, and then I got into trying to f just sculpt with my hands, utilizing green stuff and twist ties and little wire armatures. There are a few of those characters that still exist. I have posted pics on the Patreon. I think it's under the 100 Heroes uh, hashtag. And uh, I was content to kind of keep going down making these one-of-a-kind sort of green stuff sculpts forever, but I had the opportunity to do Knights of the Slice, and then full-time toy production in China sort of took over as my means to do this. So if you're looking for a good place to start, I would say just get that smooth-on kit and uh, start experimenting. Daniel Smith, what day of the month does the action figure of the month usually ship out on? Uh, there is no set day, there's no set time. Uh, all I can promise people is that somewhere between the first day of the month and the last day of the month, you will hopefully receive your action figure of the month. Uh, I believe last year, if I'm not mistaken, I managed to ship every figure on time or early. Now, some of them went out the last week of a month, and inevitably our friends in California or maybe Hawaii or Canada got their figure technically beyond that 30-day window, but uh, I can say I'm pretty certain every single parcel left here within a 30-day window. So far this year, I've managed to dispatch everything within the first week of a month, which is great, but I think that's going to change starting in March. Um, I have a figure already planned for March. It is a really good figure. It's a solid figure. It will make people very happy. But, I'm going to throw a Hail Mary, and I want to order a brand new figure that I think would be perfect for March. Now, as you guys know, China is shut down, they're going through their holiday, they're not going to be open until the end of February. This means I have a window of almost zero days in which to place an order and hope that they can rush this order, make this figure, and ship it to me. I'm going to aim for it to arrive here on the 15th. That's not a lot of time to put a new figure into production. And if it does, that'll give me a few days to count and inspect everything, box everything up, and hopefully ship it out by the end of March. Now this is really, really an incredibly risky venture. It, it truly is. But I gotta try this. I, I think I think I just might be able to pull it off, and it will contextually make a lot of sense for Action Figure of the Month Club. If that doesn't work, my backup plan is still fantastic and will probably be a figure just later on in the year for the club. But uh, I'm gonna swing for the fences here, and hopefully it works out. But I would not expect a figure to ship the first week of March. In all honesty, it'll probably be the end of March. Um, so we may have like March and April may come in pretty rapid fire succession. But yeah, I try not to have a specific day that these things uh, go out. It, it will continue to change every month on a case by case basis. That'll do it for today's Destazapod. Hope you guys have enjoyed this. 
If for some reason you're not a patron, you need to sign up at patreon.com slash Destasio. We've got a fun live stream coming up Monday on the 15th of February with some interesting product, to say the least. And uh, as we've learned over the course of this Destazapod, Turbo Way Tool Chapter 2 has landed, and I will, in short time, be getting those pre-orders out. So thank you guys if you purchased the comic book. That's all for me. Pizza out. Thank you.